0: Have you ever wanted to start investing, but feel like you have no idea where to begin? Then this podcast is for you. I want you to become more confident and more empowered with your money skills. My name is Jessica Brady. I'm a financial educator. Let's get financially fierce. Okay, so today, as I mentioned, we've got a two part series to get you invested. We're going to discuss lots of general topics and concepts today because the amount of people that tell me that they are terrified to start investing is enormous. And so, if you've never invested before, then I want you to know over the next two podcasts, you're going to learn many concepts, many ideas so that you can start feeling more confident and capable to get money out of your bank account or out of your paycheck and into the markets to grow. Let's get into it. Now, as I mentioned before, the amount of people that talk to me about investing and their fear of investing is enormous. In fact, when people hear what I do for a living, it's one of the first things that people want to talk to me about, I don't know, over a wine or at a barbecue. One of the very first things that they tell me is that they want to invest, but they're terrified. So I want to ask you if you felt that way too. What stopped you? What stopped you from starting to invest? Is it that you feel like you don't understand it? You're scared you're going to lose all of your money. Do you feel like you need to know all of the answers before you dive on in? Or maybe it's as simple as you just don't actually practically know where to start. Fear and money have a very interdependent relationship, quite a toxic relationship. And so, I know from personal experience that to get invested yeah, there's definitely things to learn and hopefully I'm going to teach you quite a lot of them over the next two episodes. But really, one of the biggest things that we need to conquer is your fear. And sometimes it's just about starting. Now, when I was younger and I wasn't a financial advisor, my fear held me back. Really what I l- learned from you know deep self-reflection was that I had a huge need for control. And so for me, money in my bank account felt much safer because I got to control where it went. I knew that if I didn't spend the money, I could be pretty certain that I'd wake up tomorrow and it's still in my bank account. And because I liked that level of control and I'm a natural saver, I thought I was doing a really good job of growing my money. I didn't understand about opportunity cost. And because I wanted to have all the answers and I wanted to make sure that nothing was going to happen to that money, I didn't want to put it into shares or any type of investment market because there is uncertainty. So, if you felt any level of fear... I need you to know I've been there and I promise you the other side, it feels so much better. And this isn't your fault. You've probably never been taught anything about investing. The fact that we teach trigonometry and not basics of investing at school blows my damn mind. Most people internalize a belief system that they just don't get investing. And they really rust on that belief. And so anytime someone brings up investing, they might think, oh yeah, that's just not for me, or I don't get it, or I can never get it. And I like to think about it like learning a new language. Have you ever tried to learn a new language? It's hard and it's confusing in the beginning and you're not going to pick it up straight away. I, for the last few years, spasmodically would probably be the right word to describe it, have tried to learn Spanish. And it is fucking hard. It's so hard, but piece by piece, it is, it's slowly coming together. And as I said, what sits on the other side when it comes to learning about investing, it's so worth it. Because this, my friends, is how we build what I call financial freedom. Let's talk about what is financial freedom. Because ultimately, if we're investing we're probably investing to build financial freedom into our lives. Now, sometimes people call this the FIRE movement, financially independent retiring early. Now, the FIRE community is an interesting one and you can either lean really heavily into it or you can pick parts from it that feel good for you. And some people look at it and think, oh, that's not really for me because I have no interest in ever retiring. But why I like to call it financial freedom is that you have the money to do whatever it is that you want on your terms. We do stuff because... We want to, not because we have to. And you can build a life that feels perfect for you. And so as we're talking about investing, I really want you to think about what would financial freedom enable for you in your life? What does your perfect life look like? And I want you to practically think about it. What would change day to day? Where would you live? would you still work? Would you work part-time? I've had people tell me that they absolutely would stay in the career that they're in. Others would go off and do, I don't know, all manner of interesting things. I don't know, start a board um, or join a board, write a book, go and do philanthropic stuff, maybe start a business. Really think about what financial freedom is going to enable you to have because in the hard moments, you need to come back to that. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But I want to tell you in no uncertain terms, when it comes to investing, there are risks but there are risks every damn time we leave the house. And we get two options. We can either minimise the risks, so think about the fact we put seatbelts on every time we drive the car, or we can accept them. When it comes to investing, there's definitely things that we can do to minimise the risks and we're going to talk about them. But at some point, we need to transfer that control and that fear that we have and realise that the risk and the reward ratio doesn't make sense. The reward ratio of being able to be financially free and build that life that you want, for most people means that we're going to take risk and we accept it. So, what is investing? I know that sounds like a strange place to start, but I think we need to. We want to put our money somewhere that in turn, over time, will grow. Now, growth can happen a couple of different ways. Either it's that the value of whatever asset it is that you have goes up, So think, you know, the classic example that most people understand is you buy a property for X and you hope over time that the property value goes up. Same thing when we talk about investing money in say shares or ETFs. We're going to talk a little bit more about what they are and the differences. So basically what we want is growth. And so the share price might go up or the unit price might go up or we want an income. When we're talking about investing, we're talking about a distribution or a dividend and we're reinvesting that to build wealth. And I'm going to talk more about sort of what that looks like and different strategies to think about as well. So, we want to put money somewhere that's going to grow for us and that money over time hopefully gives us the choice to decide whether we want to work, whether we have to work, maybe we want to reduce our hours, whatever that means based on who you are and wherever it is that you want to go. So, I want to talk about reinvesting because when we're talking about building wealth, reinvesting is so important. Now, when I was younger, I started working at a bank and because I was an employee of that bank as part of their sort of employment program, they gifted their employees a certain amount of shares every year. Thank you very much. It was my sort of gateway drug, if you like, into investing. So I'll tell you what happened. Little old me, I don't know, 20-year-old me, started getting dividends. So I'd get a literal check in the mail. Some of you may not even be old enough to know what they look like. And they were the dividends, so they were the return for being a shareholder in that bank. And I thought I was getting free money. I was so excited, got my cheque, banked it, spent it. No idea what on earth I spent it on. Because what I didn't understand was that there was an option for me to use the dividend and to buy more of those shares or buy other assets so that in turn, any additional growth would mean more dividends, more shares and everything gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So when you're talking about buying assets or investing, really understand, and I'm I'm going to give you an example in the next episode, that we want to transfer the hard work over time to the investment portfolio. And it's really hard to do that if you're taking the money out and spending it. We want it to keep building and building and building, snowballing, if you will. Uh, And that, my friends, is where the magic happens. I also want to say up front that in here, or in these episodes, I'm going to say things that might contradict each other. Because my job is to give you a lot of information and hopefully in a helpful way that you can digest and decide which is right for you. There is no one perfect solution. There is no one right way. And again, this can be hugely frustrating because people are like, just tell me what to do. Just tell me the thing. Tell me the product. Tell me exactly which shares to buy and I'll just go and do it. And I'm like, oh my God, if only it was that damn easy. There are so many different ways. And instead of frustrating you, I would like for you to think of that as an exciting thing. You're not missing some path that we finance people know that you're just ignorant to. There are different options and really an exciting array of different variables. Does that make it a little bit more complicated? Hell yeah. Does that make it impossible? Nah. (laughs) This is the technical term. You can do whatever you want. Understand the basics. Know that you're capable of change and know that what sits on the other side is really exciting. Okay. I want to talk about things uh, that I get as common in objections, but also when you should start investing. A confidence boost to begin. If you've ever bought anything online, anything, I don't care what it is. If you've been on Amazon, if you've been on the Iconic, if you've been anywhere, if you've been able to navigate the internet to buy anything, then I need to tell you, you can buy investments. It is not as hard or as complicated as it once was. And as I said, it is much easier to navigate than you probably realise. If you've navigated any of those online sites with a couple of pieces of intel, you are going to be able to buy investments. But before you buy, I've got some golden rules. I think of it a little bit like monopoly and I think I've mentioned this before. We don't want to go past go unless we've cleared a couple of things. So, here are three things that I think mean you're probably not ready to invest yet. Firstly, if you've got bad debt. So, bad debt is debt that's not against an asset. So, maybe you've got a personal loan because, I don't know, you went on a holiday or whatever it is or maybe you've got a credit card or an afterpay amount. We want to get that bad debt down because you're probably on a high interest rate. It probably doesn't feel good uh, and it means that you may not have point two, which is an emergency buffer. So, we want to clear bad debt first. We want to also have an emergency buffer before we start investing. And our emergency buffer is not the amount that we initially invest with either. So what's an emergency buffer? It is exactly that. Real emergencies. We need to make sure that if shit hits the fan, we are not going to need to sell these investments to be able to pay for whatever that shit thing is. How much do you need, Jess? Mm, It depends. That's not a good answer, is it? I'll tell you the general rule of thumb. Three to six months worth of basic life expenses. So think about how much it costs to run your life times that by three at a minimum, I think six is much better. And so, you know, psychologically, if something really bad happened, you've got three to six months, depending on where you're at, to get a new job or, you know, some buffer to help shield that um, financial emergency. The other thing, and I don't think this gets talked about enough, is that I want to make sure before you start investing, you've got the proper insurances that you need. Boring, I know, but really bloody important, especially if you're young you need to look at whether you've got income protection. And when I say income protection, I mean actually good income protection. I'll tell you why. Your most valuable asset right now is probably you and your ability to earn an income. And if you haven't protected that, you are at risk. Think about how many years you've got until retirement. Take your annual salary and multiply it over those years. Don't even add inflation. You don't need to. That number is big and scary enough. If something really terrible happened to you and you could never work again, you're going to sell everything you've got You're probably starting one of those awful GoFundMe accounts, which break my heart every time I see them. Or you're going to have to move back in with your loved ones and maybe live off solely government benefits. Income protection, I think, is absolutely vital. I want to know that the money that you're investing is not going to be touched until you need it. I want to know that if something terrible happened to you, maybe you got sick and you couldn't work for a couple of months, maybe something really bad happened. And let's say you were off for years and years, I want to know that you've got some level of income coming in. So we're clearing bad debt first. We're building that emergency buffer, sitting in cash. And when I say cash, I mean money in the bank, boring, waiting for that, you know, rainy day that our grandparents used to speak to, uh, that our grandparents used to speak about. And we want to make sure that, that A, you've got income projection and B, if you've got it, it's actually good. And what I mean by that is, it's not just for like a year or two. Because if you've got more than a year or two worth of working career left, you probably need to consider getting an income protection contract that is going to pay you for longer. If we've nailed all those ones, beautiful, then we can move into the next part. So, to my point before, we want to buy investments and build wealth for the long term. And similarly, We want to sell investments because we've gotten to the point where we strategically have decided that that's the right idea. What we never want is to sell because we have to, because there is no money left in the bank, because our credit card bill is due and we don't know how we're going to pay it, because we lose our job or we get made redundant or whatever it is and we've got no income left. We want to have conviction or confidence really that that money goes away and we don't want to pull it out for years, sometimes decades. We we know it's there. We know we can sell it if we want to, but we don't want to have to. All right. What else do you need to consider when you're investing? The most important one, I think, is what the hell are you investing for? So many people would come to see me to get financial advice and they'd show me their portfolio or they'd show me their assets quite proudly and I'd be proud of them too. And I'm like, awesome. What is this for? Why'd you buy these? And more often than not, the answer was, I don't know. Or uh, someone told me to. I'm like, cool. What is it designed for? Because this is the crux, the middle, the center. Everything has to flow from your goal. My contradiction. Are you ready? I told you they were coming. There are some people who are so absolutely terrified of investing that sometimes actually just starting is better than having a goal to begin with. It's the gateway drug, if you will. And if that's you, fine. I don't know. Open an investment account and put a tiny amount in. If you know that that's going to give you some level of confidence, sure. But you can't have that as your strategy. Because here is the problem. If you have no idea why you're investing, you are not going to be able to do all the rest of the things that I tell you are important. There's no way because you're not going to know how much you need what time horizons, how much risk you're going to be able to take. None of the other things that I'm going to teach you are going to work if you don't have a goal. And as I said, most people want to have financial freedom. I genuinely think 100%, I could be wrong, let's say 99 I reckon 99% of people I gave strategies to had the same goal, which was to build an income so that they could choose whether they work or not. So we want to build passive income. And then we talk about, okay, well, when, how much do you need, Why do you want to do that and what would you do with your time? Because maybe we need a higher amount than you think or maybe we actually need less than you think. So we want to know why we're investing. Now there's two different ways that you can do this. You can pick a specific number that you want to have by a specific date or depending on where you're at in life, it might be instead that your number that you're investing is based on what you can afford to put away in your budget. So when you're defining your goal timeframes, you need to think about over the next, I don't know, three chunks of time. How I like to think about it is the short-term goals that you've got are generally sort of 12 to 24 months. Typically, if you've got financial goals that are, you know, ones that you want to nail within the next 12 to 24 months, we're actually not talking about investing. We're probably talking about putting money in a bank account, somewhere that's pretty safe. And I'm going to talk about why in a little bit. Then I want you to think further afield. What are the big financial goals that you want to achieve within the next five years? It's a nice chunk of time to move yourself forward and then I want you to stretch yourself and your brain and think about what about five years plus? So you haven't retired yet because that's when we get access to superannuation but think about long, long long-term you. What do you want to do with your one big life? Where do you want to live? How much money would you need to support that? I do this every year. It's a big brown sheet of paper that I roll on out. And I really like to document next 12 months, what am I focusing on? Next five years, what does that look like? What is the ideal life that I'm building for myself? Because most people, especially around the new year, they get very focused on what do I want to do this year? And that's awesome. But if we aren't thinking really, really far ahead, if we know that in 20 years from now, we want to do X, Y, or Z, and we haven't factored that into this year's plan, it's probably not going to happen. Because this is not an overnight success. So we want to make sure that those long, long long-term plans, they get some resources, they get some thought and some strategy put into play as well. Okay, so we've figured out our goals. And there's lots of different ways that you can do that. I use the grow method. So I like to figure out what is the goal that you're wanting to tackle? What is the current reality? So if I figured out that I want to do X, realistically, if I keep doing what I'm currently doing, do I have any shot of getting there? May I get partially there but not the whole way? Uh, Or am I absolutely never going to achieve it? It's a good like little, you know, traffic light system if you will. Uh, The next one is O, which is around options. What could I do to make this a reality? What options are within, you know, the realm of possibility apart from winning the lottery that would work for me right now with the current situation that I find myself in? And the W I really love because it brings in sort of the annoying human component of us is the will. Am I willing to do what it takes Am I really willing to make big trade-offs if they're needed? Am I willing to stop paying for X, Y, and Z? Am I willing to say no or ask for more money or change my career, whatever it is? Am I willing to do the work? Because if the answer is no to the will, you've got to go back to G because that goal is either n- not exciting enough uh, or not important enough for you or aligned to your current life, you're not going to do it. We want to define the goal. We want to look at the current reality. We want to understand what options exist. And we want to figure out are we willing to do the work? Good. Now, when it comes to investing, before we start talking about all the different sort of ways you can invest and different product options, I want you to ask yourself, and this is in a totally judgment free way, what do I want to invest in? Because we are, excitingly, living in a world where we're getting more options about. You know, different styles of investment products. And we get more choice as a consumer around what we are and what we aren't willing to invest in. So I want to ask you what kind of companies would you absolutely want to put your money in? And what kind of companies would you fundamentally not want to be invested in? I live in Sydney and I, a few years ago, went to one of the climate change rallies. It was a big one in, I don't know, Hyde Park, I think. And I saw all of these people holding signs and, you know, really like passionately against, you know, differing kind of companies. And all I could think about as I was looking at this sea of people was I wonder how many of these people are invested in the very companies that they are so passionately upset about today through their superannuation. We have choice as consumers. And I want you to know that that means not only at the grocery store, but also when it comes to your investing. And it's totally fine if you don't have any ethical investment preferences. But if you do, I want you to think about the type of companies that we want to screen in, ones that we like, which ones do we want to screen out? Ones that you do not feel like you want to be an investor in. When you do kind of resolve that for yourself, then you've got to ask yourself, okay, if I've got a pretty specific list of companies that I don't want to invest in, does this mean that I'm going to need to DIY my portfolio? And, you know, Basically, stock pick. I'm going to have to hand pick the kind of companies that I want to be in. And then ask yourself, am I actually going to do that? Do I care enough? Do I have the time or inclination to do all the research that I'm going to need to do to make that work? Or am I going to do it once and just give up? Or instead, am I happy for someone else to do that work for me? And that might be um, a fund manager or an ETF provider. And if I'm willing to transfer that responsibility to someone else, am I? okay to give up the control of that? Because they have their own investment methodology framework, which might fit 90% of what I'm comfortable with. And am I okay for that 10% to have some wiggle room? When it comes to ethical investing, we're at sort of the infancy of this industry, I think, I hope. So choice is out there, but it's not as comprehensive as I'd like it to be. And so just know that you can find products um, that exist. Some of them have um, really what I call like dark green ethical investing methodology. And that means that they're extraordinarily thorough. And others are what I call more of a light green. So they might take out a couple of big categories. Maybe it's, I don't know, weapons or um, nuclear or tobacco, but nothing else. And so there is a green spectrum, if you like. Um, There isn't a one size fits all when it comes to ethical investing, because of course, what's ethical to you and what's ethical to me might be different. So I can't answer that for you. You need to figure that out before you start picking products. Okay, I talked about risks before when it comes to investing, but there are lots of different things that you need to think about. And because fear holds so many of us back from starting, I wanted to go through them in a bit more detail. As I said, we are navigating risks invisibly all the damn time. We just don't give a thought to it. I drive a car, you drive a car, we go on a first date. I don't know. I once went on a trapeze class with my team and I am so terrified of heights it was scary. There were risks. So, we need to accept the risks when it comes to investing. But of course, we don't want to take dumb risks. We want to minimize them where we can. Let's talk about my example of keeping money in cash. I thought I was so damn clever. What I didn't realize was there was inflation risk. The idea that in real dollar terms, your money is not keeping up with inflation, which for a lot of people is exactly what's happening right now. If you invest your money, though, in the share markets, there is volatility risk. The idea that, you know, what you put in may not be what it's worth tomorrow. If you go all in in, on just a few companies and you buy shares, then there is what we call concentration risk. Let's say that you start investing overseas, there's currency risk. So, There are definitely risks, but there are risks in everything that we do. We've got to understand them. We've got to know what are our options, and we've got to be okay with the idea that we don't have total control. So, let's talk about different risks when it comes to investing for your goals. So, remember, I told you to think about it in three different categories the next 12 months, next five years, and then longer term up until retirement age, and maybe including superannuation, depending on how you want to do it. My very general rule of thumb when you're a new investor, actually, if you're any investor, is The shorter the time horizon for your goal, the more conservative that needs to be when you're talking about where to put the money. So, as I said, 12 months, 24 months, you're probably keeping it in cash. Why? Because if I want to buy a house, I don't know, next month, let's say I've got my deposit very politely, patiently, sitting in cash, waiting for me to buy the property of my dreams or find the property of my dreams. And then I get. A little bit excited one day, and I say to myself, Hey, I've got all this money sitting in cash. I'm going to use it to buy a property. But what if I put it in the share market? I could make more money. And that might be true. But similarly, what happens if I put money in the share market and I want to buy a property very soon and the share market goes down? Am I comfortable that either I'm going to pull it out at a loss or that I might have to wait a really long time to get that back, which practically means I can't buy the property? in the time frame that I wanted and or that property prices might have increased by that time and so I'm priced out of the market that I wanted to buy at. We want to make sure that the money is there readily available for short-term goals. But similarly, when you look at the other side of the fence, which is the long-term investing camp, if you will, then typically we are most likely going to be investing in more high growth investments because we don't need it sitting idle in cash we're not taking enough risk. We're not potentially going to get enough growth. And so, if you think about it through a superannuation sort of lens, because that is really for the long, long term, if I'm invested really conservatively and I've got like 30 or 40 years until I can access it, you know, that volatility, that roller coaster, if you like, it doesn't really matter if there's little dips along the way it matters when we're trying to use the money and pull it out. So as we get closer and closer to our timeframe, we want to then obviously think about whether we're taking too much risk or not enough risk. But what I see time and time again is young people who have never invested picking a very conservative um, investment portfolio for really long-term goals. And I want you to stretch yourself and really think about, is that the right thing to do? or because I've got a long time until I want to access this money, should I be considering a more high growth portfolio? And then as I get closer to it, pulling it into more conservative assets, potentially. Okay. Let's talk about the three most common ways that new investors invest. Now, in my world, we like jargon. We like so much jargon. And again, remember I said it's like learning a new language. It bloody is like learning a new language when you talk about investing. So stick with me. I know. Let's talk about shares. Shares, or stocks, or equities, because we like to confuse you and call them different things, basically means that you become a part owner of a business. So, if you go and buy shares in a big bank, or I don't know, a mining company, or whatever, something on the stock market, you are in effect, a potentially teeny tiny little owner of that company. So, you got a stake in the financial benefit of that company. You want that company to do well, to make bank, because you, my friend, well, you own part of it. So, the thing about buying shares is you got to do a lot of research. It's pretty labor intensive because you got to figure out which companies do you want to become a part owner in? What does their profit look like? Are you really going to have the time, skills and interest in picking each and every one of these companies to buy shares in? I do own direct shares thanks to working in investment um, banks and and. Uh, Financial services more broadly. And also because when I was younger, I sort of thought it was a bit fun. But I think if that's your big strategy, either you've got to be really damn interested in it or you've got to think of a new strategy, which brings me to my next option ETFs. They stand for exchange traded funds. This is a fund that can be traded on an exchange like shares. So if you think about if we're buying direct shares, we're buying them from the ASX or the Australian Stock Exchange, you can actually buy a fund. On the Australian Stock Exchange. So why do we want to do potentially an ETF? Well, it allows us as investors to buy and sell a basket of assets. I'm gonna get sort of all Forrest gump on you. So we're buying the whole box of chocolates. We're not just buying one at a time, we're buying the whole box, and inside that we've got all the different flavors, all the different types, and we haven't had to physically manually buy each one. So ETFs can come in a variety of different sort of Um, styles. And so, you can't just be like, oh, ETF, yep, cool, I'll buy that one. They can be a mix of differing things. So, you want to have a good look at, well, what does this ETF actually invest in? But it does mean that you don't have to buy all of the components individually, which means it can be easy, can be quite cost effective, and we get diversification. The last one, managed funds. Okay, so what the hell are they? Managed funds basically pool the money of different investors, maybe it's you and me and everyone that you've ever met who knows and basically we combine the capital that's getting invested so a fund manager can basically manage that for us they can go and buy different assets they might buy shares or bonds or property whatever they've decided they want to do within that fund so we're basically pulling our money together we're getting a fund manager to go and buy the assets that they um, have said that, that that's what the fund's designed for and they will manage it on our behalf so shares we're buying individually ETFs, depending on what's in there, we're buying on an exchange, managed funds, we're pooling the money and having a fund manager do it for us. Okay, I've got lots more to teach you about investing and that, my friends, is why we're doing a part two. I'm going to get a glass of water. I'm coming back because I want to answer two of your community questions. PlushCare Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, I'm back. Now, if you're enjoying this, I would be so grateful if you could share this brand new podcast to any of the friends and family in your world that you think would get value from it, or you can leave us a rating. All right. Kelly has asked me a question. I've started micro investing and my next step was to move on to Vanguard. My understanding was that you needed more money to invest on that platform. I had in my head, I would need 20 grand to get started on the platform and get it all set up with the fees. However, I've gone back in and read that it only takes $500 deposit to get set up. Am I correct in understanding that it only takes $500 to get set up on the Vanguard platform? Or would the, a larger amount be better? Do I need to make certain amount of deposits over the year? I hope this makes sense. I've confused myself. Lol. Kelly, don't worry. This can be a little bit confusing. I got you. Okay. So years and years ago, in fact, I reckon when I started investing, you needed a shitload of money to get started. Like like sometimes like a quarter of a mil. I'm so very happy to report that that is absolutely not the situation anymore. So there are obviously different platform providers that you can use. You've here um, called out that you wanted to get onto Vanguard. So let's talk about that. Uh, you don't need twenty thousand, which I think is an exciting thing to know. I believe that the Vanguard platform does let you start with a minimum amount of say five hundred dollars or you can use a regular investment using their auto-invest feature from $200. So, if we're doing a one-off investment, yep, I think you've, you've got a minimum of $500. But if you're doing a regular investment through their auto-invest feature, my understanding is it's a $200 minimum. So, to your question of would it be better to do a larger amount, uh, that obviously depends on your situation, duh. But one thing I want to talk about is, let's say you had 20 grand, does it make sense to put it all in at one time? Maybe not. Go back and you know think about some of the things that I've talked about today. Is that going to clear your emergency buffer? What are we investing for? So that twenty thousand, do we need it for something else? If, however, you've decided no, nope, that twenty k is part of my you know investment strategy, and I'm quite comfortable putting it in whatever Vanguard product you've decided Kelly you want to. I would generally recommend doing a dollar cost averaging strategy. I'm going to talk about that a bit more in the next episode. But the thing with investing is, you know, if we're going to put in such a large amount, we probably want to spread it out over a little while, maybe a couple of months, because we want to make sure that we're getting the average price and not put it in on the day that lo and behold, it's the most expensive to buy. It's like the opposite of buying something on sale. It's like when you buy something and the next day everything's on sale, you're like, damn it, I literally just bought this and now it's half price. That's not what we want when it comes to investing. So we want to probably spread it out. I don't know how good their auto-invest feature is, but maybe you can set it up and maybe you can set an end time. And so we kind of get the average. Hope that that helps, Kel. Good luck and congrats on investing. Okay, the next community question comes from an anonymous Uh, just know that I'm very happy to answer questions anonymously. You can put it in the This Is Money Facebook group or you can DM me. Slide into my DMs. I am Jess Brady underscore financial advice on the gram. Okay. Anonymous asks, Hello, (laughs) hello. I just started investing into ETFs this year and was wondering how to determine how often to top up my money into each of them. I've been putting around 3K in every three to four months, but I wanted to invest more of my paycheck faster to maximize my time in the market. Would it be better to put more in at once, e.g. 5K every four months, or a bit less but more frequently, i.e. 1.5 to 2K at the end of each month? Great question. A couple of things to think about. So again back to my uh, question from or my comment for Kelly, dollar cost averaging is important because we don't want to buy something on the most expensive time and then find out tomorrow it's on sale and that is potentially the risk if you're putting 5k in every 4 months you might put it in on the wrong damn day and then for the rest of the 4 months until you put it in again it might have been cheaper which meant practically that you didn't buy as many units in that ETF as you could have. However, if we're buying every month, we also want to look at what are the fees involved. So Depending on how you're buying that from a practical perspective, we want to know what platform fees are going to look like um, and any buying fees. So, it might be that you get charged trade fees um, and the fees potentially if you're using, say, a managed fund, there might be a a buy-sell spread. I know your question's around an ETF, but you want to know what the buy fees are as well. And do the numbers and do the math, I reckon reckon is a word that my mother hates. I believe (laughs) that dollar cost averaging is probably the better way to go. So, potentially smaller amounts, more regularly with a system that just means you just get out of your own way. But do the numbers um, and have a look and see what works for you because you don't want it all eroded in fees. And this becomes really relevant when, you know, you maybe are not putting in money at this level. You know, this is quite a lot of money that you've got congrats to you to put in every month. But if you've only got, say, $100 to put in every month and you've used a platform that charges you, I don't know, 20 bucks every time you're trading, that's a huge proportion of that money that's going on fees. So, do the math, figure out which is going to work for you and set it up as an automation. Congrats on ETF buying and good luck. Okay, I'm going to leave it there for part one. I've got heaps more that I want to share with you on investing in part two. So, stick around lots more to learn, lots more to explore in our quest to get you financially fierce. Bye.
1: We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we live and work and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to this podcast. Jessica Brady is an authorised representative of Paragem Proprietary Limited. authorised representative number 1259972, AFSL 297276, ABN 16108571875, corporate authorised representative number 1305567. Any information or advice contained within this podcast is general in nature and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of an individual. Financially Fierce is produced by the team at This Is Money. Keep the conversation going in the This Is Money Facebook group linked in the show notes.